friends, nerds, librarians, and all you ilk. Welcome to episode 35 of the SS Librarianship Podcast. Just a twofer today. Yep. Just the two of us. Just us. SS Librarianship classic. Mm -hmm. We can make it if we try. (laughs) Castles in the sky. Never gets old. No, never ever. (laughs) So we've got, uh, we're talking about the... The research comments. Yeah, so we've got a uh, brand new Class Z for you today, and I share some of my experience working in a academic library research commons this year, which was an amazing experience and definitely is um, part of the future of academic librarians and and libraries that want to stay relevant, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Those, of course, that have uh, a research focus, graduate students, graduate programs, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I have to admit, I am a little bit jealous (laughs) because it did sound like such an amazing experience. To work there for like eight months. Wow. With any luck, you'll get to do it permanently very soon. Um, and then I guess in Mind Grapes, we just uh, we talk about some of the cool stuff we've been doing lately. We've got some... Yeah, left to our own devices. We do not read books, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> Vampires and lawyers yeah. for you today. Yeah, so it's all about movies and TV today. Uh, I guess you get to decide which is more evil, the vampires or the lawyers. Has there ever been a vampire lawyer thing? I feel like that would be really interesting. You know what? If you, you could find pull out a, like crazy uh, precedents from 300 years ago because you were there. <laughs> <laughs> totally <laughs> that would be awesome <laughs> well i guess without further ado let's just, let's just let's just get this one started let's do it i'm ali sullivan and i am government man sent from the government the government has sent me <laughs> and i'm sam mills and ladies and gentlemen take my advice pull down your pants and slide on the ice Sally, what's on your mind, Grapes, this week? <laughs> well, I managed to uh, to get out to the theater in Vancouver where they play sort of the smaller run movies, you know, your indie films, your mm-hmm. your smaller release pictures. Um, it's nice that we get so much of that in Vancouver. I don't yeah. think I would have gotten to see, say, Moon in theaters, right? Oh, if my it wasn't God. For that. Moon is amazing. It really is. Okay. Uh, yeah, no, that that's a great science fiction movie with Sam Rockwell and is it Kevin Spacey is the robot? I don't know. I All I remember. remember is Sam Rockwell and more Sam Rockwell, which yeah. always makes a movie better. Yeah, so. that's a great movie. Um, <laughs> but we digress. We digress. That isn't the movie I went to go see. Um, it's funny. They're like, I'm not, uh, despite my, you know, everyone who's listened to a few of the episodes of the podcast know that my husband is the, the horror freak um and is writing on writing his his phd dissertation on on concepts around gothic horror now despite this i'm actually not a big fan of horror movies Mm. i like of i like a select few and you know just in general the kind of pops pop scares and things like that they don't jump scares that does not interest me yeah (laughs) we've talked about this before it's got to be a little more clever it's got to have a bit more of a hook exactly and um I went to go see a vampire movie that's actually not a horror movie at all. It was a little surprising in that way. I thought it was going to be more of a horror movie than it was. Mm. Um, but I managed to get out to see Only Lovers Left Alive. Ah, I've read about this, but yes. I've not seen it. So it's, uh, it's a movie about uh, two vampires, kind of focused around two vampires. There are more vampires in the movie, of course, but um, 
it's it's a fun movie and you know if you're the kind of person who's super duper sensitive to uh, plot spoilers um i'm just gonna warn you now but there's not a whole lot of plot to the movie hmm. anyway it's like more of a character piece it's definitely <laughs> Which, it's a character piece it's a, it's a, it's a mood movie, piece right so that's yeah. sort of to be expected that it would be more about the characters right yeah so it's a very it's a very character driven it's about these characters and and how their lives have been affected by the fact that they are immortal and um it's uh, it's really really interesting. So, the two main vampires are played by Tilda Swindon, who pretty much looks like a vampire anyway, mm-hmm. and uh, Tom Hiddleston with some you know pretty lanky black hair and you know mostly <laughs> yeah. shirtless all the time. So you know delightful, and uh, they play Adam and Eve. Come on, <laughs> the naming in this movie is one thing. It's a little bit, it's a little on the nose, mm. you know. But uh, they are Adam and Eve, and they are very old vampires who have been engaged in a, uh, you know, a very passionate love affair for the past couple of hundred years. Mm. Um, but they don't live together. They do live separately. Um, she has a home in Tangier um, that is filled with books um, that. Like that's clearly sort of the thing that she has decided to make her immortal life about is books and, and the written word and, and consuming that kind of knowledge. Whereas um, Adam has uh, set up his home in the ruins of Detroit, pretty mm-hmm. much. So, um, so he's a rock musician. He'd clearly put out a little bit of music because people keep kind of finding him and he gets really upset when they do. Um, <laughs> but he's more of a, of a creator, you know, he's, um, he's not just a, a, a an extraordinarily gifted musician. He, he's also, it's also kind of, um, alluded to that he has, he's kind of taken on certain, uh, like he's patronized certain artists hmm. or or thinkers or scientific minds. Like they mention at some point that he was kind of a mentor to Tesla, where he was, uh, you know, he wrote some of, you know, some of Schubert's greatest pieces. I think was the kind of, of the, like shaping human output. Yeah, so very much like shaping human output when he's also putting things out himself. Um, and he's kind of a good match for. And then there, there's yeah, there's sort of two kind of peripheral vampire characters as well so it's very much centered on their relationship and, and what's happening with them and then there are two sort of peripheral uh characters that va- vampire characters that sort of bring their bring their relationship into relief which is really nice so um in tangier very old uh vampire of uh christopher marlowe so <laughs> Kit Marlowe is a vampire in this reality and uh, and is is also kind of like Adam. He's also a producer, of course, because, I mean, Christopher Marlowe is an mm-hmm. amazing, uh, amazing Renaissance author, contemporary of Shakespeare um, and uh, like, you know, lived an extraordinarily interesting life, was probably a spy for Queen Elizabeth right. and probably was killed in the line of spy duty. That's kind of the 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 commonly accepted version it's of his really life kind of surprising there aren't more movies about christopher marlowe yeah yeah i've always i've always thought so um so he's he's like adam he he produces he writes um but he also like because they're vampires they can't constantly put stuff out under their own names that just doesn't really work right mm-hmm. so he also kind of had paid like patronized people and one of them was Shakespeare and oh Shakespeare is a no talent <laughs> hack blah 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 and so that's a really entertaining part of it um and then the other vampire character is uh Eve's sister 
Now, this relationship is never really explained as to are they sisters like they were actually sisters before they became vampires? Mm. Or is it sisters like they were sired by the same vampire like the the sister part of it is never really explained um but she's kind of this wild freewheeling um character who comes into their lives again like a whirlwind they hadn't seen her in 80 years when she had um you know screwed something up royally when they were in paris and now they're like never allowed to go back to paris (laughs) (laughs) so she kind of she kind of comes in she she figures out where they are in detroit and comes in and kind of has this whirlwind effect on their lives and she's she's constantly hungry like she is a not just a consumer like like Eve is a consumer but a consumer without abandon Hmm. you know like she's she just she wants she craves she takes she needs you know um so this is like I said the the relationship isn't explained and that's kind of symptomatic of the whole movie where Hmm. a lot of the a lot of the vampire mythology just kind of goes without saying like there's never a um you know (laughs) straw diagram yeah. style this is how the vampire mythology works in lovers <laughs> left no alive character that ticks off on their fingers the ways of killing vampires in this particular universe correct yeah, yeah. but like but you realize you know the, the the ways you kill vampires in this universe are clearly sort of they're they're similar to what you would think like mm-hmm. this sort of the whole plot is kicked off and this isn't really spoiling anything because you learn about this in the first five minutes of the movie the thing that kicks off the plot is Adam has kind of become suicidal as a vampire and is having his, um, like he has kind of a, he's not a thrall because he's not actually under any kind of spell, I don't think, but he's kind of his assistant helper person. He has him like going out to see if anyone can make him a wooden bullet kind of stuff so he actually does he ends up getting this wooden toying with the idea of not being alive anymore which is almost kind of an interesting uh, it's interesting when science fiction and fantasy go to that place of Mm -hmm. Well, if someone really could live this long and do all of the things that they want to do, we as mortal humans like the idea that you yeah. would get sick of it because yeah. it makes us feel better about our, our, that aspect of the story is often there to make us feel better, I think, about our mortality, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah I think, I think so. And it's, um, but it, you know, he ends up talking to Eve and she's like, you know, not again kind of thing, honey. <laughs> and so she actually ends up flying to Detroit from Tangier and uh, they kind of have their, they talk and they do things and they, you know, I think by the end she's convinced him kind of not to, not to go mm-hmm. through with it sort of thing. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a really interesting movie. Um, it's uh, I've, I've, I've read a few other um reviews of it and one of the things that i think has it, it has lobbed against it a lot is that it's really pretentious that is the sense that i got reading yeah. a review of it yeah yeah and you know what i don't think it's pretentious that I and the think... presence of tilda swinton is sometimes yeah. an indication of that <laughs> it can be but um i think that the movie is um legitimately intellectual like, I don't think it's pretentious. I don't think it's pretending to have any kind of knowledge or just trying to make itself look smart. But like, it's, it's the, you know, it's very referential. Um, it, it helps if you kind of know the sort of, you know, some, some broad strokes of cultural history and yeah. some scientific history, you know, like. Um, and they actually discuss those things as opposed to sort of 
I don't know, leaving empty space. Exactly. Right? Which, which the more pretentious movie of that kind would, would often do. Exactly, yeah. And I think the last thing I'd really like to mention about the movie is how interesting the relationships between the vampires and humans are. Because it's one of these relationships that's really um, fraught with difficulty because they, they simultaneously um, you know, need humans feed on humans they need they need blood like Mm -hmm. they they are blood drinking vampires um but there's this kind of they try their best to get it legitimately like um sorry legitimately is the wrong word because they are i think consensually consensually yeah like they're they're acquiring blood um for medical purposes like like Adam is is paying a what I think he's some sort of hematology researcher. He's basically paying him under the table to give him, you know, good blood samples. Mm. And um, there's also this sort of connotation of um, the blood has to be drug free. It has to be, you know, the person who donated the blood has to be very healthy because, like, if you get bad blood, the vampire can get very sick from it and even potentially Which die. Which is sort of interesting because in a lot of vampire stories, there's often an association between vampire culture and the sort of seedier parts of human culture. Yeah. And so that's not something that's really discussed. I mean, there's sort of no. almost an assumption that, of course, the blood that they get is going to be full of drugs and alcohol and whatever yeah. else because of the sort of humans they associate with. Right. Like, that's that's interesting. Yeah. And it sets it apart. Yeah. And uh, so there's always this concern of how are they going to acquire their next their next feeding because as as the as they don't feed um they get more and more bloodthirsty and it's it's it is like like a drug a little bit Mm. um so yeah they have this really interesting relationship with humans where they're trying to acquire the blood proper like you know through not killing people channels um and uh and it's this simultaneous relationship of dependence and also they look down on humans, mm. you know, of course, because they are the, the you know, the, the raised, the elevated beings of, of vampires. So it's a really, really cool movie. I think it is still in limited release. Um, so if, uh, you know, if it's in a theater in your city, it's definitely worth it. Otherwise, I don't know if it's available on any kind of digital download, but I'll, I'll look into it and uh, put that in the show notes. Awesome. Um, last thing to say about it is um, there after you've seen it or before you've seen it, there's actually also a um, review online by a girl on the uh, That Guy with the Glasses network. Mm hmm. And her name is a Maven of the Eventide, and she's pretty funny. And she does <laughs> she reviews vampire movies of of any uh, kind, sort, variety, whatever. And she has a really interesting kind of analysis of the movie from uh, from the perspective of Taoism. So looking at Adam and Eve as the yin and the yang, and so that's a really interesting hmm. and very convincing kind of. I tried not to I tried not to step on her toes too much with what I was talking about, <laughs> in case you wanted to go uh, check it out for yourself, because she's uh, she does some really good videos plus you know any of her other videos especially the ones where um where she talks about uh, like really terrible like notedly terrible vampire movies like dracula 2000 nice. and um when she was a there's actually a really interesting when she was challenged she doesn't i don't think she likes twilight mm. as as a vampire thing because like she's she's really into sort of the Anne rice vampire scene right. right um but she was given a challenge of the top 10 best things about twilight so she actually does do a really cool video about the top 10 good things things she likes enjoys appreciates about twilight. yeah and uh so she's really interesting maven of the eventide 
That's awesome. <laughs> so I'll uh, I'll put a link to her in the show notes as well. All right. So what about you, Sam? I know you've been having some fun, but uh, what else have you been up to? <laughs> uh, yeah, last week was kind of packed. We went to an improv show. I went to two improv shows, actually. But um, I've also been watching uh, The Good Wife, mm-hmm. which... I sort of was always aware of and knew that it had always gotten good reviews. Uh, my parents are really into it, which they have decent taste in television. Um, and it's got some actors in it that I really like. Mm-hmm. I'm a big Josh Charles fan. Isn't Alan Cummings uh, in that show too? Alan Cummings is also in that him. show and he's actually very good in it. He's, oh, cool. uh, he's our current favorite character as we're watching <laughs> during the show. Um, so I guess in the course of talking about this, probably spoilers up to the end of season two or so. Okay. Uh, we're still in the process of working our way through it on Netflix, but I've been really pleasantly surprised. From the outside, it really looks like your sort of standard legal procedural, mm-hmm. which I am not that into. I mean, I liked Law and Order. Or I, you know, I'll watch it if it's on TV, but it's not really my thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I've been really very impressed by this show. It's really a lot more nuanced than you might expect. It does have the sort of case of the week. Um, structure to it but there's a lot of other things going on as well and the ensemble is really strong all of the main characters are really interesting characters so the sort of setup of the show in the first episode is Juliana Margulies's character uh, Alicia Florick is a lawyer but hasn't been practicing for like 15 years she's been Mm -hmm. at home raising the children of um, her husband who is a state's attorney in I want to say Chicago pretty sure it's Chicago. Mm -hmm. Uh, And at the moment where the show is beginning, he has just been kicked out of office and arrested and sent to jail Mm -hmm. for accepting sexual favors in return for like being soft on certain cases and whatever. Awesome. Um, And so the show begins and sort of the reason it's called the good wife, right? With her doing the very, very cliched, especially cliched at the time, which I think was 2008, 2009 when the Mm -hmm. show started of standing by her man at his press conference while he apologizes to his constituents. Right. Um, And they've cast um, Chris Noth as uh Peter Florick? Oh, yeah, like big from that yeah, terrible show that really everybody loves. Yeah, because okay. he's a very um, he's a very strong sort of manly kind of presence, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but not totally unsympathetic either. Right. And so they sort of complicate it that way, I think, just by having an actor like him in that role. Mm-hmm. But uh, so he ends up in jail and she ends up having to um, go back to work to support her kids Mm -hmm. and so a colleague of hers from law school uh, Will Gardner played by Josh Charles of Dead Poet Society fame I love that movie Um, and also Sports Night he was Knox the romantic okay I have to watch that movie again clearly he's he's a a very good actor Um, and so anyway so she gets a job with him at his law firm which is this big sort of high powered Chicago law firm and, and despite the fact that they're the same age and he's a named partner at this firm she's starting at the beginning as a right. first year associate and she's sort of the first half or so of that first season is her kind of being on um, probation and being up against another much younger lawyer for mm-hmm. a spot at the firm and so that's um, that's kind of interesting too to watch this sort of middle-aged woman go back to work. It already already sets it apart in some ways from a yeah. lot of other shows that are about a marriage, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and she's just fantastic. She's this very, she's so reserved, mm-hmm. and she's so good at showing the differences in Alicia's behavior based on who she's interacting with. Okay, like 
I feel like that's something that often is difficult to capture in the portrayal mm-hmm. of a character on a television show. Sort of, it's not just figuring out who the character is, but also figuring out who they are in relationship to all of the people they interact with. And yeah. she's very good at that. She really, her demeanor changes based on whether she's with her children, whether she's dealing with Peter, whether mm-hmm. she's dealing with Will, who she may have had some kind of romance with in the past, and Ooh. so there's a thing going on there. <laughs> um, and the other female characters are so interesting as well. There's a woman named um, Kalinda, played by Archie Punjabi, who is the investigator at the firm, and so mm-hmm. she's your sort of, um, you know, you've always got to have that character who doesn't dress in the high-powered business suits and yeah. sort of does the kind of seedier stuff that the the big-time lawyers can't do but still needs to be done for the yeah. various cases. And so she's got all these relationships around the city uh, with cops, with drug dealers, with whoever can help her get the information they need for their cases. Mm-hmm. And she's also a bisexual character, which is really interesting, mm-hmm. um, which sort of comes out slowly. And at the point we're at in the show, she's still not super comfortable with it being common knowledge among her colleagues. Right. So it'll be interesting to see what they do with that. Mm-hmm. But uh, the show definitely doesn't shy away from showing those relationships that she has, which is really interesting. And then they've got on the opposite end of the spectrum, like you've got Archie Punjabi for this sort of like young, hot, dangerous female (laughs) character. And then you've got Christine Baranski Mm -hmm. playing the other name partner at the firm, Diane Lockhart. And they've done such a great job with her. Like there still really aren't that many roles Mm -hmm. for, you know, women over 50 (laughs) in television and the movies, especially ones that are not, um, you know, a mother or a grandmother or some mm-hmm. other sort of supporting character, right? Right. And she's this very powerful lawyer who's sort of sacrificed a lot of her personal life to build this firm to the place where it is. She's also extremely liberal, which comes into conflict a lot of the time with the sorts of cases that they have to take on. Mm-hmm. She's a patron of Emily's List. She comes from this long line of high-powered Democrats and her mm-hmm. family, and that often comes in. And then she also ends up with a couple of romantic subplots herself, which is mm-hmm. also kind of great nice to see to for see, a character yeah. that, that, that old, right? Yeah. <laughs> which is not that old, but for female characters on television, it kind of is. Totally. So, yeah, it's a really fascinating show. There's a lot more going on in it than... Um, than you might think. And How's, it, how good is the is the law? Are they doing corporate law, criminal law, family um, law, or any kind of, any number of They're legal? defense lawyers. For the most part, it's criminal law. Okay. Um, but it seems to be sort of, they also have a lot of wealthy clients who keep them on retainer, and so mm-hmm. whatever comes up, they will deal with. Right. Um, and it definitely does have that kind of rip from the headlines uh, structure sometimes. Mm-hmm. And they've dealt with a lot of really interesting um sort of viral videos and they did an episode that was um, very similar to the social network and that there was this big uh, you know high powered sort of Silicon Valley kid mm-hmm. who started this company and then there was a movie made about him and they had an interesting take on that mm-hmm. um, most recently we watched an episode where they were asked to take on the case of a young Palestinian student from one of the universities in Chicago who had been accused of murdering an Israeli student Mm. at an interfaith rally on campus. Okay. And um, through the course of the investigation, you get a lot of discussion of Israel and Palestine, of the politics in the United States around the support of Israel. Uh, And then in a big twist, spoiler, um, it turns out that actually the murder had absolutely nothing to do Mm -hmm. with Israel-Palestine, with this interfaith rally, with any of these other things that were going on. It was that these two students were in a relationship, a gay relationship that they mm. wanted to keep keep secret from their respective faith communities. Yeah. And that it was actually this crime of passion that had nothing to do with okay. anything. Right. And so 
you know, exploring two hot button issues at once. Right? Mm-hmm. And they managed to do that without it being too gimmicky. Okay, well, that's great. Yeah. Um, yeah, I would highly recommend that show. I'm, I'm still having a lot of fun watching it. Unfortunately, I know a couple of things that are coming, which always happens when you watch an older <laughs> show. But uh, if you can stay spoiler free, I would I would recommend it because it's definitely um, it's a very yeah it's a very nuanced portrayal of a woman sort of making her yeah. way through these kinds of situations, and it's yeah it's a lot of fun. I think The Good Wife is interest would be interesting in that like following a woman through. Is really mm-hmm. cool. Um, the way you're talking about the uh, the other named partners at Diane Lockhart, mm-hmm. she kind of reminds me of uh, Gina Torres's character in Suits, oh, um, which is another really great legal show. It's a little more sensational, and of course, you've got the two male leads, and Gina De- Gina Torres is kind of a supporting character, but she is one of the named partners at the law firm as well. Mm-hmm. And again, that like kind of super badass, super awesome character, and. Um, it's it's great because they don't ignore that she is an older woman of color. Like she's like, there are times where she's like, you know, I didn't get where I am today being a black woman and mm-hmm. you know being submissive or whatever. Like she always had to go after what she wanted and yeah, um, you know, never never regrets. Like never seems to regret the kinds of personal sacrifices she's made, which is really mm-hmm. which is really nice to see. I don't know. Like I, I I'm getting a little tired of these high powered women who are you know punished internally and with their emotions for being you know for the sacrifices yeah, yeah, or yeah. feeling bad for feeling being bad feeling like right? they've yeah. given something up and but. that's been an interesting part of this show as as alicia's law career has unfolded as well is mm-hmm. that the firm because of their placement in the kind of clients and sort of high level um you know corporate or criminal or divorce proceedings that they end up involved in because of all the um political sort of sensation around her husband and around their relationship and him being in jail. And then when he gets out of jail, um, we're at a point now where they've tried to make it work and actually separated. And that's not, that hasn't been made public yet. Yeah. Uh, but what ends up happening often is that they'll take advantage of this. Mm-hmm. They'll have her sit in on a certain set of divorce proceedings because of yeah. her name. Right. Right. And it's interesting because I think you would expect uh, a, a sort of lead character who you're supposed to empathize with, whose morals you're supposed to agree with. You would expect to have Alicia say, well, no, I'm not going to let you use me for that. I'm a good lawyer. Put me mm-hmm. on cases that I can. But actually, she she really shows that she understands the position that the firm is in. Mm-hmm. And she understands that she has a thing that her bosses can use to their advantage and she has to let them do that. And often she'll just, she'll just do it. Yeah. She'll do her job as well, but she will trade on the sensation around her relationship, which yeah. is, which is interesting. It's not something you would expect. It's a little, it's a little seedier than you might mm-hmm. expect from sort of a female hero. Right. Yeah. And that's nice too. That adds some nuance to her character. Well, that's awesome. Yeah. Well, that sounds like we got a couple of good things uh, for you this week, then. If uh, if it happens to be in a theater near you, uh, <laughs> do go check out Only Lovers Left Alive and uh, The Good Wife on there Netflix. There are four seasons on Canadian Netflix right now, I okay. think. Yeah. Awesome. This week on Class Z, we are, uh, it's just the two of us again, mm-hmm. <laughs> and we're just going to do one of our uh, kind of ruminating on a little bit of a certain topic, um, but also Sam can share some personal experience she's had with this concept. Um, so this week, we are turning back to the academic library, um, which is where most of our professional experience has been so far, mm-hmm. Um 
and talking about the idea of the research commons. Um, for those who are sort of a little uninitiated, um, we're all getting pretty familiar and pretty comfortable with the idea of a learning commons. Uh, learning commons in the library is normally a space where um, things like tutoring happen. Uh, usually there's information desks there. Uh, usually kind of an open concept space that's mm -hmm. meant to facilitate student learning. Yeah, there's computer equipment, there's collaboration space, there's a lot of opportunity for peer learning. Yeah, so... Uh, largely focused on the kind of learning aspects of university. Mm -hmm. This, of course, is leaning towards sort of an undergraduate space. Yeah, most learning commons, including the learning commons at UBC, are more focused on, on undergraduates, on mm -hmm. bringing them up to speed in terms of their research skills um, and providing them opportunities to learn from each other as well mm -hmm. as tutors in kind of a yeah, more informal environment. And a lot of space to get projects done mm -hmm. and oftentimes uh, I know at UBC um, there is an independent kind of writing center at UBC but that has recently moved into the space of uh, the learning commons. Yeah it's sort of it's interesting the learning commons in the university context has almost become a mirror of something like the neighborhood house or the welcome center in mm -hmm. a community setting. Right. Um, obviously it's you know coming from a bit of a different perspective serving a different and more limited audience than a neighborhood house would but it's the same idea in terms of identifying an audience with a need, in this case, mm -hmm. undergraduate students, and then bringing the services together that make sense for them and into one space that's as comfortable and welcoming as possible for them. Mm -hmm. yeah. And really meant to kind of do things like decrease library anxiety and um, do all kinds of fun stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So... Then on the flip side, I mean, what if you're at one of these giant R1 research institutions and you start to feel like your library is starting to cater to a group that, although is larger than you, is no less important. Mm -hmm. So what do you do when you're a graduate student and you need library help, but there's no space for you anymore? Yeah, and you need sort of a more <clears throat> more specific, more focused, um, more detailed kind of help, right? Mm -hmm. Because you've got a narrower focus mm -hmm. in terms of what you're actually working on. Yeah. Yeah. So I was lucky enough this year to work for the Research Commons at the UBC Library, uh, which is a fairly new project. It's going into its third year. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And where, so the Research Commons, I know recently it's actually acquired a space, but before that it was kind of this sort of nebulous, it was more like a, my, more like a series of programming than an actual coordinated space. Am I right? Yeah, well, and it still is in some ways. Um, there are some plans. It's in Kerner Library currently, or at least most of the services it offers work out of Kerner Library, which those of you who've been to UBC will know is sort of the biggest kind of main library. Um, it's the Humanities and Social Sciences Library. Library, but a lot of programs are run out of there as well. And there is some talk as the floors full of books in that library become slightly less full of books mm -hmm. as physical collections are weeded and as the new big storage facility on campus opens up. Um, I think the hope is that there'll be some sort of permanent space on one of those floors that's sort of a dedicated graduate student area and the research mm -hmm. commons would be part of that. But right now it's working out of the second floor, which is where the information desk is, and it's sharing space with the um, Geographic Information Systems Lab, which has some nice big computers in it and is really empty most of the time. Yeah. Because unless you specifically need GIS software, you don't use that lab. And it's locked unless a librarian opens it for students who need GIS software. So instead, what's been happening is the Research Commons uses that space for office hours. And it's great because 
It's a space that's open to students. When there's a library employee in there, you can have the door open and be pretty welcoming. Um, there's a nice big sign outside and everything, but it's still sort of a private, quiet space away from the main information desk where you can really work together. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, so it's got space in the sense of it has office space in the back area of the library and it has this lab space that's open at least a few times a week for mm -hmm. drop-ins and appointments. So if it doesn't have, like it has a little bit of space, so it's mostly a programming initiative at this point. It is, yeah. yeah. Um, and it's sort of a... It's kind of a nebulous term at this point, Research Commons at UBC, because there is the Research Commons, which is what this three years of funding has been about. Mm -hmm. And that runs um, programs that are responding to identified needs of graduate students. So there's sort of four main areas right now, um, and they're working on adding a fifth. But there are thesis formatting workshops. So obviously you go to your department and your advisor for content advice. Mm -hmm. But what we're looking at is actually helping you with getting this giant document together right. in a way that's going to meet um, the requirements for you to pass. right? Mm -hmm. And so that's a great service because it's run by graduate students for graduate students. We understand what you're going through. Mm -hmm. um, and we are well-versed enough in Word and in some of the other formatting tools that you need that we can sit down and work with you about it. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's great. Um, there's also citation management, which in the undergraduate context is very much just about helping people access and use the APA style guide for basic <laughs> citation or whatever, right? Right. But when you get to the point where you're doing a big research project, you need actual software to help you, mm -hmm. especially these days when you're right. expected to sort of cite these things multiple times, when you're expected to go over those citations with a fine-tooth comb. Also, when you're being expected to submit your work to multiple journals as a grad student and as a postdoc and whatever, and you're constantly being asked by those journals to reformat for their citation style right yeah so um we've got a few different programs that we support um refworks unfortunately yeah it's still the official citation management software at ubc it's it's a robust program but it's just very simple it doesn't do mm -hmm. a lot uh but beyond the basics and then we also have got um, mendeley and zotero which are free online programs anybody can sign up for an account um, mm -hmm. and they're they've got a lot more going on in them so those are usually the ones we recommend do you but, have a favorite uh, i like mendeley yeah yeah i think um politically i'm more of a zotero <laughs> fan because it is open source and it was developed by a nonprofit institution but right. um, but mendeley is is jazzy and it yeah. works really well with pdfs which so much academic research relies on mm -hmm. now being able to manipulate and annotate and share PDFs and Mendeley does really well with that. So, I mean, if you're seeing a pattern emerge in these services, it's very much the mechanics of being a grad student. Mm -hmm. And one of my colleagues, um, Jen Abel, who is amazing, she's the thesis formatting guru there. She talks about the fact that as a grad student, you feel like you're supposed to know how to do these things, yeah. right? You got into grad school, so of course you can format a Word document or mm -hmm. figure out how to use a program to manage your citations, and you should be just doing that stuff and then focusing on the content. And that's not only coming from the grad student's own head. A lot of times that's coming from the department saying, oh, absolutely. why don't you know these things? Yep. Are you dumb? Yeah. Yeah. And that's the, that's the worst attitude yeah. to have, either <laughs> totally. from others or about yourself when you're already in the position of having to work on this giant project mm -hmm. and having so much stress anyway. 
trying to contribute something new to your discipline, right? Right. So the idea with the Research Commons is the library and partners identified these needs Mm -hmm. that are more structural and less content-based, and so nobody else was picking up that slack, right? You have your department and your committee and your advisor for content. You have the librarians for actual research help, but you don't have anybody helping you out with these pieces that sort of bring it all together, and so Mm -hmm. that's really what this is about. Um, So those were two of the big ones, and then... um, The other one that was added this past year was SPSS, which is um, a big kind of data wrangling program that's used in the social sciences a lot. And there's now a few different levels of workshops that are also run by graduate students who are well-versed in that for graduate students who need to manipulate data and statistics for their work. Mm -hmm. And again, it's one of those things where you've done the research and you know how you want to present the research but you need to figure out how to actually do the mechanics of that. And so that's right. another sort of um, space that's being filled in. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are the three big types of workshops. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also a lot of sort of one-to-one consultation appointments that we do uh, apart from the workshops. And then I'm saying we have stopped working there now, but it was such a, such a cool experience. Yeah. Um, and then they're also trying to add data management for next year. Yeah, that was going to be really my question about that. big yeah. thing right now in um, in grad studies everywhere, um, and in Canada in particular, because the Tri-Council is starting to come out with new requirements, and also a lot of the funding agencies are now requiring that if they're gonna give you funding for your graduate research, you need to provide them with a data management plan. Yeah, Not just what you're researching and what you hope to find, mm-hmm. but actually how you're going to collect, store, manage, and ultimately share the data that Mm -hmm. you're generating. And that's still a fairly new thing. Librarians are still learning about how to do that, but it's definitely a niche that academic librarians have identified as something the library can help with. Mm -hmm. So they're hoping to do that next year too. So these are uh, really amazing programs. Are they well attended right now? Um, They are. Word of mouth is definitely spreading. And I think um, I worked for the Research Commons this year from August to April. And from what I understand from the people who worked there the previous year, numbers have gone up. I'd say that the thesis formatting and citation management workshops don't usually attract more than like between 10 and 20 students at a time. You don't the want SPSS, more than that. Yeah. Well, the SPSS workshops are a little bigger. Um, they're always... They're always team taught. So Mm -hmm. there are always two graduate student employees of the Research Commons teaching the workshops together so that there can be a floater. Because like you're saying, you don't want a large group necessarily because you want that one-to-one contact, that one-to-one attention, right? And at certain points in the term, attendance will go way up, Mm -hmm. (laughs) especially around deadlines with the thesis formatting workshops. Yeah. Um, And at certain points in the term, they'll just be, you know, a person or two which actually works too because you can just sit down with them and really get to the heart of what they need, which is Mm -hmm. what the one-to-one appointments are for, but it sometimes does happen in the workshops as well. Uh, And I think I maybe had one instance this year of nobody showing up for a workshop. Mm -hmm. Which is pretty, like in terms of library workshops, that's pretty impressive, especially ones where they're not required. Yeah, well, and that's the thing. Last year I was teaching these uh, information literacy workshops that were required for all first year students. Yeah, and those are... And so that's a little Those are a little bit of a circus. going to be 30 kids, right? Yeah. (laughs) They are definitely circus is a good word for it. Yeah. But these are very... um, I think the fact that they're well attended speaks to the fact that Trish, who's the head of Kerner Library, and the other librarians and um, academic staff involved in this did a good job at the beginning of assessing needs, of deciding Mm -hmm. what services needed to be offered. Yeah. Yeah. 
And uh, yeah, they've been, you know, developing some online content and offering email and Skype as alternatives if you're, you know, a UBC graduate student who's out of the country or whatever. So they really are making an effort even more than regular library service does to meet the students where they are. Mm -hmm. That was going to, that kind of leads me nicely into my next question, which was just going to be about um, what kinds of outreach do you do? Outreach, advertising, advocacy for the research comments. Mm -hmm. Were you able to get into any of that in your position? Um, that wasn't part of my position. I was more <coughs> teaching the workshops and um, developing some of the online content, although the online content was um, definitely integral, I think, to people finding out about the services. Uh, Kelsey, who was our coordinator, was more into the sort of marketing side of things. And mm -hmm. a lot of what she would do is she developed relationships with the graduate secretaries in all of the departments that have graduate programs and made sure that they knew that this was a place they could send their students for these kinds of questions, which I think is really important, having that um, relationship. Jen and I always make the comment at the beginning of the thesis formatting seminars that in any profession, whether you're a grad student or a librarian or whatever, being friends with the secretaries is really, really important. I learned oh, yeah. that when I was a substitute teacher. Absolutely. <laughs> <think> <laughs> um, so yeah, so making sure that the graduate advising staff and the graduate secretaries know about it. She would also go out to departments and do presentations. Um, we also, you know, did things like hand out cards to all the students who attended workshops so that mm -hmm. they could tell their friends. And that's a lot of how it happened was somebody would come, realize this was useful to them and tell other people in their department. Mm -hmm. Um, and then we also this year put together a video, which I will link to in the show notes. That was, that was my baby <laughs> in the spring term was putting this video together and it's sort of a fairly short, I think it's came out at four minutes. Um, and it's a thing that you can just kind of get a, a quick snapshot of the Research Commons services. Mm -hmm. um, the fourth service, which I didn't talk about, and maybe I will now, is um, is Fire Talks, which I don't know if you attended one this year or not. I never, I never yeah. did, but I just wrote it down on my little note. <laughs> <laughs> and and that became a big component of the video, which is why I bring it up. So, with that word of mouth. Um, I think a lot of that did come from the FIRE Talks. So FIRE stands for Facilitated Interdis Interdisciplinary Research Exchange, which we always okay. ask people to say three times fast and they never can. Um, and basically, it's a chance for grad students to come together and talk about their research over some sort of interdisciplinary theme. Mm -hmm. So they had things like um, tools of the trade, right, where everyone would come together and talk about sort of the, the tools they use in their research and how that might cross disciplines. Or they had one about... Um, they had one about indigenous knowledges, I think, mm -hmm. and sort of how different disciplines approach incorporating indigenous knowledges, indigenous cultures, that sort of thing into their research. Uh, there's a whole list on the website, and I will link to it, but basically it was they would invite some students to come and give a five-minute or less talk on their research and how it touches the theme in some way. Mm -hmm. Then there would also just be a conversational component. And they're actually now, um, Barack and Melissa, who run the Fire Talks, who are also grad students at UBC, are starting a podcast as well. So oh, nice. we'll make sure to link to them when they've got that up and running. <laughs> and it's an opportunity to bring that kind of conversation to more people. So if you yeah. can't make it out to the actual fire talk, then what you can do is sort of listen or um, become part of the conversation by going into the studio and and chatting with them that way. So they're going to have yeah. sort of a presentation component and a discussion component. Mm -hmm. And it's great because a lot of what we saw was grad students getting stuck in silos. Yeah. Especially when they're working on thesis work, when they're beyond their coursework and they're just sort of, you know, head down writing and researching, talking to their advisor and their subjects. And that's pretty much it. Yeah. So it's a way to 
to make them a little less isolated and make them aware mm-hmm. of what's going on in other disciplines, which is great. And I think that's especially great at a school like UBC, which is so huge. <laughs> like UBC has yeah. tens of thousands of students. And sometimes like having done having done graduate degrees at, at two different institutions now, I can tell you that Queens as a smaller institution there was a lot more uh, camaraderie. Like Slace is mm-hmm. a Slace is um, the iSchool school is a little bit of a of a bubble in its own, and yeah. you can really get to know the people that you are there with. Well, and partially because it's a course based program, right? yeah. which not everyone gets in their in their graduate studies. Exactly, yeah. and the library is such a natural space for that kind of cross disciplinary community to get built. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm surprised in some ways that it took UBC a first class research <laughs> institution so long this long to yeah. come up with a program like this, but I'm so glad they have. And it really is a testament to I mean, everyone involved, but especially Trish, I think mm-hmm. as she's taken over Kerner, she's really made an effort to make outreach part of the mm-hmm. library. I think the academic library, maybe more than any other type of library is very used to people coming to them. Yeah. And it's a given. Professors and departments making requests about materials Mm -hmm. or students needing help and coming into the library for workshops or for one-to-one help or whatever. And and yeah, and it's a given that it's part of university life. And I think it's really important to step a little beyond that to realize that things like programming and outreach and marketing and whatever are not just the province of the Mm -hmm. public library, that you can really make more of an effort to build a community through and around the library at an academic institution and that can be really important. Um, So Trish has been doing that in all kinds of ways at Kerner and it's great to see. I think the last bit of programming that I wanted to ask about and I think this is done through the research commons, do you guys facilitate three minute thesis? No. Oh, then I'm, I'm a terrible student. (laughs) <laughs> but there are, it's interesting because um, those services that I've talked about, those kind of four slash five, are the research commons services in the sense of the staff that's hired directly to work on the research commons, mm-hmm. inputs those, and um, and the funding from the, um, I can't remember the name of the grant right now, oh, TLEF. This is the TLEF grant that comes in is specifically to fund those services. But that said, there's a lot of other services for grad students at UBC. Mm-hmm. And the Research Commons is making an effort to sort of do a lot of joint marketing yeah. with those services. So totally. there are other graduate student workshops outside of the ones that are offered through the Research Commons itself. And those are kind of co-promoted with mm-hmm. ours. So yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if Three Minute Thesis is also part of that. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess my last kind of uh, thing I'd like to discuss about the about the academic library and the research commons in particular. So we touched on it a little bit in when we we're talking about the the services, the future coming up, you know, you're doing the SPSS workshops now. Next year, we're probably your the research commons is probably going to do a little bit more talking about uh, data management. Mm-hmm. And just thinking about a data and how huge of a uh, of a thing it is these yeah. days and, and trying to make sure that the data is out there and trying to make sure that it's published in, in open access formats. Um, how do you think the research commons in the future might be able to uh, sort of incorporate this idea of data, like as in becoming repositories or, or even just facilitating the, the relationships between how to keep your data open and how to keep your data relevant? I think the research commons at least the way that it's set up at UBC, and I know a lot of other institutions are doing a similar format, is going to be more about the community building aspect of that. So mm-hmm. it'll be maybe delivering these workshops that could be about you know naming conventions for data in different disciplines or how to write a data management plan to submit to your funder or those kinds of things. And 
I think that'll be an important component of its involvement. But I think more than that, the fact that the Research Commons will have these sort of two or three years behind it of developing relationships with grad students, with departments, with grad secretaries, with the grad studies department at UBC as a whole is going to be really important when it comes to the point where the librarians want to say, we've identified this new need and we have the tools to help you with it come to us because there really is still a tradition in academia of things like data management being done on a very one-off basis Mm -hmm. you hear all these horror stories from librarians i can't remember the name of the professor which might be a good thing right now but um (laughs) there's a guy who's just notorious among the librarians at ubc because he was this fantastic researcher in Mm -hmm. like history and social science Um, He taught at UBC for a long time. I think at one point he worked at the library as well. Mm -hmm. And he left behind these decades of demographic data about Vancouver, about certain segments of the population in Vancouver. And it was never collected in any kind of organized way. A lot of the files were paper, which was a problem in itself. But then Mm -hmm. also it was sort of, you know, this grad student worked for him for a couple of years and used this particular format or naming convention to save this data. And then someone else came in and did it differently. And so it's been this huge project for the library to gather all this stuff together, reformat it, and make it accessible because it's this valuable local data that you're mm-hmm. not going to get anywhere else. And so many other researchers could benefit from that. Yeah. And I think breaking that culture of sort of the silo and of the library as um, a place you go after you've decided what to do, after yeah. you have your research plan, as opposed to the library being sort of a, a set of people and, and resources and knowledge that you can consult from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. The the pre-existing relationships that the Research Commons is helping to build, I think, are going to be really important to that for sure. Yeah, it's gonna it's gonna sort of raise relevancy of the of the library. Yeah, I mean, this is the next big thing. Um, Eugene mm-hmm. Barsky, who's one of the big data guys at the UBC Library right now, keeps talking about that. He's very excited about it, and he's getting all the other librarians excited about it because. In every type of library right now, we're dealing with these big shifts. We're dealing with mm-hmm. there are services that we're used to providing that aren't really necessary anymore. And there are new needs that we need to keep up with that we know that our tools and our knowledge and our attitudes are really well suited to. But we have to figure out how to make that work, mm-hmm. how to reach out to the people who need those things. And data is definitely that thing right now for the academic library, I think. Awesome. Yeah. It was a great experience. If you have the opportunity to get involved with the research commons at your institution as a student worker or as a a workshop attendee or whatever, um, Mm -hmm. definitely find more out about it. Spread the word. Get involved because it's um, it's great. It's, you know, it's grassroots in academia, which you don't always see. And since it is such a kind of new concept, it is sort of the next big thing. If uh, you're at an institution that is doing it completely differently and you have no freaking idea what we're talking about <laughs> let feel us free know. let us yeah. know we would love to uh to talk to you about um how you're doing different things to create a graduate community at your universities because uh it's something that i think is is lacking in a lot of programs and mm-hmm. it's something that i think uh the library is extremely brave for for taking yeah on. it's something that the ubc library should be really proud of and i hope that it it continues despite you know the The funding issues a lot of academic libraries are facing now, I think this is a thing that should be preserved. Mm -hmm. So research commons, pretty much a good idea. Mm -hmm. Two thumbs up. 
That was great. That was great. I yeah. haven't gotten to like reflect on that experience like that yet. So well, I'm, glad, I'm glad we did that. I'm glad we gave you a little bit of time to marinate on it too. Mm-hmm. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Our social, I guess to wrap up, we'll talk about the social media landscape Absolutely. a little bit, which is pretty awesome right now. Uh, we're still climbing on Twitter. We're almost at 380 followers. So that's super exciting. Yeah, welcome aboard, everybody. Yes. Yeah, so if you've come to us that way, awesome. That's so great. Please like, share, comment, let us know. Talk to us on Twitter. We're pretty much obsessed with it. So, mm-hmm. And we've been um, getting some great comments. Adina was on there again this week. Yeah, yeah. she was uh, She was talking about the last week's David Waddell episode. She said it was one of the, her favorite episodes. That we've done. I really enjoyed doing that one. Yeah, that was a really cool episode. And so she sent us a whole bunch of commentary about about the library as public space and about how we as librarians need to interact with that space Mm -hmm. and about Um, yeah leaving leaving yourself open to those conversations with patrons. Yeah, Yeah. and so uh, she is at Adina Tamsin on Twitter. Um, She says that she loves how librarianship is a two way street. uh, People getting excited about what they're reading and experiencing and wanting to share, Mm -hmm. and how amazing is that we librarians get to bounce back and take that excitement and kind of return it. Yeah, and and even amplify it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then she tells an anecdote about a patron. She was working at a at a reference desk at one of the Vancouver Public Library um, branches, and she talks about a patron uh, who would handwrite YouTube URLs for her for the weird music <laughs> that he loved. So awesome. again, trying to trying to share that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So thanks again, Adina, for for commenting on that episode. It was it was really really fun for us to do. Yeah, yeah. It was sort of a much more like abstract, freewheeling conversation than we usually do, and I mm-hmm. love that. I think we have to do that again for sure. Yeah. What's uh, what's going on on Tumblr? You're more you've got your pulse on the Tumblr a little more than oh, I do. Do I ever? Uh, so we're we're still hovering around like 320 ish followers, and we love them all. And uh, we also got a nice little mention from Intelligible Dirigible on Tumblr. One Say of that our, five one times of our, fast. Tumblr pals. Um, he did a Comic Con style thing at his library. Um, he works at a library and uh, he talked about podcasts on the panel discussion. And along with Welcome to Night Vale, he also plugged SS Librarianship. Yay! So that was great to hear. Yeah. Thank you again for that. Um, and also, we've gotten quite a few likes and reblogs on our Tumblr post from this past week about the new buttons and also um, donation opportunities uh, at sslibrarianship.com. Mm-hmm. And we are about to send out our very first two mail orders of buttons. Yay. So exciting. Yeah. So uh, yeah. please, please, if you, if you like the show, if you appreciate what we're doing here, um, please do consider buying a button. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't mean to be kind of crass. This is not comfortable for Canadians to talk about. <laughs> but uh, so far, all of the money for this show has come right out of our dear mm-hmm. little pockets. And we so enjoy doing it that, you know, we're willing to to, to absorb those costs to a certain <laughs> point. But uh, as we want to do more, as we want to go to conferences, as we want to update our equipment, as we want to buy drinks for our guests, all those good things, um, we do need to, yeah, to, to keep the money flowing. So um, mm-hmm. this is one way to do it. You can buy a button or two um, or three or four. And uh, you can also hit the donate button at sslibrarianship.com mm-hmm. if you want to just throw a few shekels our way to help us keep doing what we're doing and to those of you who've already ordered thank you thank you thank Mm -hmm. you so much it means like my heart jumped when we got that first order email absolutely (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, so, so yeah, I guess all that's left is, as usual, to thank Jonathan Colton for the use of our theme song, Glasses, off the album Artificial Heart. I have officially put down the first part of my deposit for Joko <laughs> Cruise Crazy 5, so this is happening. <laughs> oh, I'm so excited for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I guess that's it for us this week then, guys. Um, as always, enjoy some of that summer sunshine, and we'll catch you on the proverbial flip side. Are we going? Mm-hmm. Oh, shit. <laughs> Sorry. Okay, wait.